When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. What's going on, guys? This is Andrew Davis of Them Dirty Roses. You are listening to Jay Scott and the Hook Rocks Podcast. everybody to another episode of the hook rocks the ultimate rock community podcast i'm your host jay scott thanks again for tuning in we are part of the pantheon podcast network great platform of music related podcasts there's something for everyone on the platform you've got martin popoff the rock historian Vinny apathy and carmen apiece with local chicago promoter ron anesti and the hanging and banging podcast as well as shout out loudcast with tom and zeus Mistress Carrie out in Boston and Cobras and Fire with Baco, who uh, has a great podcast, kind of mixes comedy in with rock and roll. So check them out on Pantheon Pods on Facebook and Twitter, and also visit them at PantheonPodcast.com on the internet. You can follow us on Twitter, follow us on every streaming platform where you do get your podcast, and also look us up on Facebook too with The Hook Rocks, and set your app on your phone to automatic download so every time the new episode airs, it goes right to your phone, it helps you have a better day. It's clinically proven that The Hook Rocks takes stress out of your life. I'm completely joking. Probably adds more stress to your life. I know it does for me, but anyway, I'm really excited about my next two guests. 
Uh, I've got Darren and John from Into the Void, a Black Sabbath podcast. Wanted to do this not only because it's Black Sabbath. I want to do a legacy show about the band, but I also want to do something special for Halloween. So I figure, why not do a legacy show on Black Sabbath? So Darren, John, what's going on? How are you? Doing really well. Thanks for having us, Jay. Yeah, doing good. Thank you for having us on your show. I really do appreciate you coming on. As I stated, we always start the same way every time we do a episode with first-time guests, and that is what we're all about. Like every great rock song has a hook that sucks you in. Every rock band has a moment, whether it's a song, an album, a band, or performance that hooked you on rock and roll. What was it for you guys? Well, up for me with Black Sabbath, it was the first time hearing Paranoid. Um, yeah, I remember hearing, and I, we've talked about it on the podcast. I remember hearing Paranoid probably uh, around 19... 19- 81, I guess, when Ozzy first came around on the Blizzard tour. Now, I was I was familiar with Black Sabbath because I bought Never Say Die when I was getting into things that weren't Kiss uh, when I was a kid. And that was one of the bands that had just released an album along with Van Halen, uh, the new Rush. So... I would frequent a record store and, and I and I saw the Black Sabbath Never Say Die poster, decided to give it a shot, bought it, took it home. Eh, didn't blow me away. Fast forward a few years later, uh, I was riding in the car. I heard an advertisement for the Blizzard of Oz tour uh, at, the tower, at the Tower Theater here in Upper Darby, PA. And the first few seconds maybe up to a minute of paranoid just just blew me away i loved i loved the vocals i loved the tempo of the song the riff i had never heard anything like it and it just it blew me away so then from that point on i was all about ozzy getting more into black sabbath checking out the albums that i probably should have heard initially but but didn't and then all the way up until here we are, <laughs> you know, many, many years later, still talking about, still loving Black Sabbath. But that was my moment hearing Paranoid for the first time. Yeah, for me, uh, what hooked me into rock was well, I had been exposed to uh, Kiss and some Ted Nugent and stuff like that. I had an uncle that was only 10 years older than me. And he was listening to like Kiss and Ted Nugent. And I kind of liked that stuff. But when I heard ACDC, I saw a video for them for You Shook Me All Night Long. This would have been 1980, Back in Black. It just came out. I was hooked. I was, that's what got me into rock and roll. That's what ignited the flame for me. And it was very right around that same time that our local classic rock station where I lived in uh, Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, Rock 107, shout out, used to play uh, Rock Blocks. And they would play Black Sabbath. They would play three songs from, from an artist and they would play like Iron Man, Paranoid. And I heard that and I just loved it. There was a kid on my bus who had an older brother who had the record and he 
either took it when his brother wasn't looking or somehow convinced his older brother to let me borrow this paranoid album. And I brought it home and made a cassette copy of it. And uh, that was it for me. So my, the first band to get me into rock and roll was ACDC with the Back in Black album. And what got me into Black Sabbath was the Paranoid album and, you know, War Pigs, Paranoid Iron Man, those songs. As you guys listened to Sabbath and got into Sabbath, was, you know, was there ever a moment where you kind of went away from them for a bit? Because, you know, through everyone's musical journey, you always have your beginning. You have stages of different types of music that you enjoy and listen to. And then for whatever reason, you come back to where it all started. You know, for me, it was Van Halen, Kiss, Journey, and then you know, I've gone in and listened to other things, but I've always come back to like that stuff that made such a mark on my life as a kid. What was, was there anything like that for you guys? Well, I mean, when I was a teenager, <clears throat> I started listening to, um, well, I, I mean, I think once I got into hard rock, I started to, I wanted to hear things. I wanted to keep moving up the ladder of heavy music. I wanted to go to the next level. And I remember when I was probably around 12 or 13, I saw a Motorhead album in the uh, record store. And I, and I turned it over. I looked at the album cover. I turned it over and I said, and I just thought to myself, I'm, I'm not ready for this. This is probably way too heavy for me. But someday, someday I'll work up to that. <laughs> a few years later, lo and behold, I was all about Motorhead and then Slayer, Metallica, and it was constantly about moving on and then getting into hardcore punk, anything that was heavy, anything that was aggressive. Um, but then I started to see a lot of bands that were in that genre, in that of that ilk paying homage to Black Sabbath and I'd never really gotten away from Black Sabbath but I guess I kind of like sidelined it a little bit I was so into Black Sabbath when I was a kid I mean I listened to every album backwards and forwards and you know during that period of discovery I was really occupied with, with checking out new stuff but then when I started seeing pictures of bands or reading interviews of bands that were current and talking about how important black Sabbath was to their formation, you know, it kind of reminded me, Oh yeah. You know, volume four was an amazing album or, or paranoid. Oh, I haven't listened to that in a while. And then started getting back into it. And it just became, I guess, part of the, part of the fabric of my day-to-day -day listening. Um, and Ozzy too, you know, uh, Blizzard of Oz, Diary of a Madman, two heavy hitters there. Um, but Black Sabbath, as I got older, I, I think when I was younger, I could interpret or I could connect with the music to a degree. But the, the cool thing about Black Sabbath is it, it speaks to a teenager as much as it speaks to an adult in some of the situations, uh, some of the emotion that's conveyed within the lyrics, the melodies, the way the music sounds. It's one of the rare bands, I think, that, at least in my experience, that I could say that it, it's almost impossible to grow out of because there's always something there to connect with. You know, when I first started listening to Black Sabbath, I could connect to 
songs like Iron Man or Fairies Wear Boots or something that didn't have quite as much of a, you know, um, emotional, that wasn't really on an emo- as much of an emotional level. And then when I got a little older and you start to listen to some of the, some of the lyrics and the songs like Wheels of Confusion or uh, Hand of Doom or, or something that brings in more of an emotional um, vibe, it, it really resonates pretty well. So, um, you know, I, I guess the thing is that, yeah, you kind of strayed away from it a little bit, always sort of had them on the back burner, but Again, you know, they they just never went away. For me, anyway. Yeah, it's interesting for me. I drifted away from metal around 89, but I never really drifted away from Black Sabbath. At 88, 89, a lot of the bands that I was into were putting out albums that, that I didn't really care for. Think about what Priest it was putting out in 88, 89. Maiden was starting to feel a little bit stale to me. Uh, also, at that time, I, I, I went to college. I was a music major in college. I, I had to listen to like a lot of classical and jazz stuff for assignments and things like that. So I sort of drifted away from metal, but I always stayed in touch with Black Sabbath. Now, this is the days before the Internet. So it's kind of funny how things would just I'd walk into a store. I remember Headless Cross walking in and like, oh, here's here's a new Black Sabbath album, Headless Cross. I still bought every Black Sabbath album when they came out. I remember my wife, uh, she wasn't my wife at the time. Uh, my girlfriend at the time worked at the radio station at our college. And she was like, hey, we just got this promotional copy of the new Black Sabbath album, Tear. You know, that's how I heard that for the first time. And I always, Black Sabbath was that one band, the only band that I can really say that I didn't drift away from. I drifted away from all my other mainstays, Maiden, Priest, Dio, Ozzy, ACDC, those my core bands. I drifted away from all of them where I sort of lost touch with them, wasn't as interested in what they were doing. But Black Sabbath, I, I was still interested. Maybe I, the fire wasn't there as much as when I was 12 years old getting sabotage for the first time. But if I saw a Sabbath album, I got it. I listened to it. I was still, I think like Darren said, Darren made a good point. I had gotten sort of burnt out on you know, hair metal was running its course in the late 80s. Bands like Priest were putting out things like parental guidance. And I just couldn't, you know, it just didn't translate for me. And, and but Black Sabbath, at all phases of my life, Black Sabbath uh, worked for me. It, it, it translated to me. And like Darren said, maybe what I what I thought when I was 12 years old, listening to it, it changed as I as I got older. But Black Sabbath is a band that's that's always uh, always been there uh, for me. My first experience with Sabbath was the Mob Rules. I was about six or seven years old, and we had some older kids in the neighborhood. My brother was very influential in what I listened to. And we were at some house in the summertime and we were listening to some old scorpions and a kid came over with mob rules and put on the album. Never heard anything like that before. Up until then, you know, I'd heard some priests like diamonds and rust, green men, Alishi. I was familiar with made more so because of Eddie and being six and seven years old, having that, you know, the impression of that was so you know, it had such a big impact on me. And then, of course, there was Kiss, and then there was 
you know, I think I mentioned Van Halen and ACDC and some other bands, but when I heard Mob Rules, it was like, it's like, what, what is this? You know? And then going backwards, I heard Iron Man. And of course, being a young kid and hearing Iron Man, it was the coolest thing ever. <laughs> uh, and then my first album I ever bought was Headless Cross. My first Black Sabbath album I ever bought was Headless Cross. And, you know, it was just a band that obviously, you know, I was, I, I missed their, their, the peak of their prime. And, you know, you had to appreciate similar to like Led Zeppelin. You had to appreciate what came before you started listening, but the band was always present. And, and like you said, you, you know, um, there's, they were always so influential to the other bands I was listening, whether it was Metallica or whether it was, you know, Anthrax and, and all these bands. And I, I, you know, after being a Kiss fan, when I was in grade school and going into high school, I became a Zeppelin fan. And once I got into Zeppelin, it's almost like simultaneously I got into Sabbath, you know, because everybody talked about those were the two that influenced everybody in hard rock and heavy metal. And, you know, I've always looked at those two bands and this has been said before. It's, it's nothing different as basically the forefathers. You could probably put deep purple in there too. Well, um, maybe some UFO too, you know, and, you know, some early scorpions, but you know, those were the two bands. And I've always wondered, you know, one of the questions I've always had is, you know, obviously, you know, Zeppelin has so many diverse styles, you know, from album to album and even in the album, but, you know, I understand why Sabbath influenced heavy metal, but I also think Zeppelin too had such had equal influence in terms of just arrangements because when you look at their styles, you know, like, like with war pigs or, you know, with kind of black dog, you know, it's, it's, it's still got that blues background in it and it's just a different way of playing it. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think that the difference was that barring maybe uh, some instrumental interludes and things like that, black Sabbath was consistently heavy, at least in the, at least for the, better part of the 70s uh for the better part of the 70s or pretty much the zeppelin was only around in the 70s 79 i think was when enter the outdoor came out and it was essentially it for that um there was a lot of different things going on there was traditional traditional blues with led zeppelin there was a lot of um more folkish type stuff of course we had sandy denny on uh, battle of evermore yep. Uh, Sabbath never had songs like that, nor do I think it was really their intention. Um, and the background of the members of Led Zeppelin was a little bit more diversified as well. We had Jimmy Page was in the Yardbirds, uh, pretty much of a strictly blues rock band. Um, and they were a little, also a little older, I think, and had more experience uh, with traditional blues, early rock and roll. Um, Black Sabbath just came out and hit hard, hit heavy. And that was their, basically their manifesto was to just be loud, aggressive, full of emotion. And, and that was pretty much, they stayed on, on course pretty much throughout. I mean, there was some slight variation, but not nearly as much as there was with Led Zeppelin. Led Zeppelin, you had, you definitely, like you said, Black Dog. Real heavy song. I remember the first time I heard that, I was like, wow. 
whole lot of love and another one that's really heavy uh when the levee breaks but then he had some atmospheric stuff like you know cashmere um stairway to heaven certainly i mean every who didn't hear stairway to heaven you know all the time <laughs> uh, I, I don't think you know and i'm not saying one's better than the other because for me i was more into black sabbath than i was led zeppelin i mean i also had my led zeppelin when i was into led zeppelin and listened to a lot of led zeppelin until i until i got burned out on led zeppelin but uh black sabbath just kind of resonated a little bit more for me and i think it was i think i could just connect with it i, I just felt like there was more of an emotional content with black sabbath i just and i think that there was so much less pretense with black sabbath i I, I didn't feel like I felt in a lot of ways and not just Led Zeppelin, but with other bands as well, that there was kind of a, there was a division there. There were, they were the rock stars and you were the fan. Whereas with black Sabbath, I kind of felt like, Hey, we're, we're kind of the same because, you know, some of the, the topics, lyrical topics they were grappling with, I, I could kind of feel too. And, uh, and I could connect with that. And it wasn't really a whole lot that I could connect with lyrically with, with Led Zeppelin. I mean, you know, you, you the lemon song. No, not really. <laughs> I mean, it was cool, yeah. you know, but I, you know, but like, oh man, so many different songs, Black Sabbath. Uh, gosh, like I said, wheels of confusion uh, under the sun, you know, just so many things that you could, you could just, kind of sink your teeth into a little bit more and, and relate to. I, I, I That was the thing with me and Black Sabbath. I could just, personally, I could just relate more to what they had to say, whereas Led Zeppelin were sort of like kind of on a plateau that was a little bit above me, you know. Yeah, the difference for me between Led Zeppelin and Black Sabbath, they both come from the same place, which is the blues. You know, and they roughly came up around the same time. Black Sabbath, or I mean, uh, Led Zeppelin, of course, you know, released their first album a, a year or two before. Uh, Led Zeppelin released their first album a year or two before Black Sabbath. But what Black Sabbath does, and for me, this is what different, differentiates them and makes them, in my opinion, the, the creators, the godfathers of heavy metal. They had a mood, an atmosphere, a tone, a vibe to their sound. That although Led Zeppelin flirted, flirted with it at times, you know, maybe in a song like No Quarter, maybe a little bit in Cashmere, maybe a little bit with the, uh, you know, what's going on with the album cover on Led Zeppelin 4. But Black Sabbath, the song Black Sabbath, the song NIB, the Hand of Doom, Children of the Grave, under the sun, symptom of the universe. These are all like just really intense. There's a, there's a dark overtone to these songs. And even though they're both coming from the blues, Led Zeppelin interpreted the blues in a way of like communication breakdown. It's a pretty heavy song and it's got a real sort of metal trope to it there. The, the chugging on the bottom string and everything. But then Black Sabbath did the same thing with Paranoid. Those two songs are kind of similar. They have that chugging open thing, but yeah. Paranoid is just the lyrics are darker and more like, you know, what's going on here. It's just more ominous sounding. Ozzy, he's got a clean, high voice, not as high as Robert Plant, but he's sort of, but Ozzy's voice is more, uh, has, has more of a creepy tone to it. 
Uh, and just to me, that's that's what separates Black Sabbath from when people are citing the who are the founders of heavy metal. You always hear Led Zeppelin, uh, Deep Purple, Uriah Heat, Black Sabbath. And for me, what separates Sabbath is that intensity, that emotion, that dark mood, this, this somber, the rain at the beginning of the song, Black Sabbath, the subject matter, the album covers like the first album or Sabbath, Bloody Sabbath. You know, there are other bands that maybe brief touched on that but black sabbath that was their calling card and, and they did it really really well i've always thought that heavy metal ran through the tone of T- tony iomi's guitar and the drumming of john bottom you know if you if you look at those two and how how they really were different than what was coming out i mean page of course was this great guitar player but page you know was a blues guitar player and he, you know, he did some innovative stuff, but really the innovation was, was with Iomi and his tone and, you know, how he played and how he presented the notes and how he attacked the notes. And then there was Bonham that played like no one else played before. So I always felt if you really want to break it down and kind of peel the orange back and keep peeling it back, I think those two were monumental in the sound and tone that what came after in terms of heavy metal. Um, as far as Ozzy's voice, I, I never... I've always felt that he doesn't get enough credit for the vulnerability in his tone of his voice. You know, it yeah, is a higher pitch really voice, funny. but it is of like that, that sad clown, you know, like when, if, if, yeah, if the sad clown yeah. had a voice and was crying, like, you know, you see the pictures of, of the art, you know, artistic portraits of, of the tearful clown or whatever, the clown with a sad face, it would sound like Ozzy if it sang. You know, there's a lot of pain and a lot of vulnerability in that voice. And it's so unique because no one sings like that. No one's ever been able to sing like that. Um, And also, too, you know, they were very socially conscious coming out of the 60s, you know, which was the counterculture movement. You know, we talked about the lyrics with Zeppelin. It was, you know, Lemon Song, like we talked about, and, you know, the blues bass and the sexual innuendos. And some of the stuff probably wasn't as deep as the Sabbath stuff. I mean, you talk about, you know, the, you know, War Pigs being a, you know, anti war song. Zeppelin never did anything like that. Um, and I think they really connected with that. They kept connecting with that counterculture movement, which is the seed of heavy metal when you break it down. Yeah, totally. That that makes total total sense. The Sabbath lyrics, you know, that's a very good point that they they were dealing with things like destruction of the the environment with electric funeral or children of the grave, uh, you know, uh, just other heavy subject matters, heroin addiction, hand of doom. Uh, and Zeppelin never really kind of went there. No, nobody really kind of, kind of no, yeah. went there back at that time. It was really Sabbath. And I love the way you describe Ozzy's voice because, yeah, he does bring that element of that's this mournful, wailing, sad. So when he's singing, you know, you know, children of today will be the children of the grave. The way he sings that, it's in like a mournful kind of, you know, this is tragic and with the way he sings to war pigs, the way these things are being done to people, it's, it's tragedy. It's tragic. I, I liked when you said that there was a vulnerability in his voice. I think that was, that was a great way to, to describe it. And I think because of that vulnerability, um, it was easier for, for me personally to connect to it because I felt like, well, I liked the sound of his voice, but the vulnerability made it sound more sincere 
Whereas if we're comparing Black Sabbath and Led Zeppelin, when you're listening to a Robert Plant, a lot of it was, there's a lot of bravado, a lot of like vocal acrobatics, you know, and with Ian Gillen as well. I mean, a lot of screams. There was a lot of emotion that Ian Gillen would convey from time to time, especially in, you know, Child in Time uh, with the screams. And that was also a socially conscious topic you know, Vietnam War. Um, but by and large, those those singers like Ian Gillen, Robert Plant, David Byron, we mentioned your I Heat, the emotional depth was something that was kind of far and few between. Um, with Ozzy, it was kind of constantly there. And even though he didn't write the lyrics, and John and I have talked about this, if there was if there were lyrics that he connected with, he could really sell them. Uh, She's Gone from Technical Ecstasy was a real melancholy ballad. And and he didn't write the lyrics. It was written by Geezer, I believe. Geezer wrote most of the lyrics. But just the way that he took them and sang them with total conviction. And I think it was because of that vulnerable aspect that, that you described that made it really convincing. And that was that really worked to his advantage. So we could see it as a flaw, but I think with Ozzy, it was it was a it was a plus. I mean, I think that it helped people really internalize. I think a lot of a lot of the lyrics and a lot of the way that the vocals sounded. You know, I, I think it, it did help to diminish some of the distance between uh, artist and fan. And I think that I think that can be important. I think, it, you know, in some respects, it, it's good to have that that professionalism, that, you know, master class, very proficient on your instrument or whether it be the voice or guitar or drums, whatever. But other times, I think from an artistic standpoint, it might be more important to connect with the audience. And I think that vulnerability uh, was one way that I think that open that open that avenue up with Black Sabbath as far as Ozzy's vocals. Yeah. And Black Sabbath for me always came across as like the working man's band, you know, it reminds me a little bit of maybe like ACDC, you know, somebody like Bon Scott, Ozzy is, is sort of like that kind of character. He seems very real. He seems vulnerable. Like you mentioned for me, he's kind of like the Rocky Balboa of heavy metal. He's <laughs> this underdog guy that you want. He's flawed. Uh, but you want to root for him. You just like the guy, you know, he's the type of guy that if you were in a bar full of people, everybody, he, you know, you want to talk to the guy, you want to be friends with him. He just has this sort of vulnerable quality to him that he's still, even though he's, you know, mega, mega billionaire uh, today, he still has this. I mean, you know, he's an ordinary man is the title of his most yeah. recent record, you know? And I think that the difference between the Aussie era and the Dio era, I mean, there were a bunch of differences, but one of them is, is that that dynamic sort of changed. You know, Ozzy was this fragile, vulnerable guy, whereas, whereas Ronnie was this powerful larger than life his lyrics were more fantasy based more strength and power and holy diver i mean that's a deal solo song but you know what i mean just just sort of more epic and powerful whereas you know ozzy the ozzy era of the band was this a little bit more of working class we're just like you guys here we've we're 
we're concerned about all this crazy stuff that's going on in the world also. And they always tell the story. Sabbath always says, you know, we, we couldn't sing about, you know, putting flowers in people's hair because we were in Birmingham where, where all the buildings were bombed out from the war. And, yeah. you know, our streets were a mess and violence and gangs and stuff. So we couldn't relate to San Francisco and let's put flowers in our hair. You know, they sang about what, what they knew about, which was destruction and decay and, and drug addiction and stuff like that. Yeah. I always felt too that what made Ozzy so endearing was he knew his limitations, right? He never tried to be something he wasn't. He never tried to oversing. Where as much as I love Robert Plant, there's moments on every Led Zeppelin record where it's like, yeah, you know, he, if, he, if he maybe did it a little bit more subtle, it may have had a more, more of an impact on the song. And I think Ozzy never, you know, did that. I think Ozzy always remained in the song, remained very centered in what he was trying to do with his voice. And he knew he had that morning type voice where you, you think of, when you hear his voice and sing, you think of sadness, you think of, you know, pain. And it's like that artist who paints on a canvas, you know, who gets that, that muse, that motivation to, to, you know, feel something and put it on a painting. That's essentially what Ozzy is. Yeah. And, and I think there was also probably with Ozzy, I think there, he put a higher priority on melody than maybe Robert Plant did. I think Robert Plant was obviously very conscious of melody, but I think he was also dividing his time between keeping a or creating a, a memorable melody and also showing off what he could do with his voice and, and you know, reaching for things and being flamboyant. Whereas Ozzy was more or less just trying to convey the melody. And like you said, I mean, he never outstepped his bounds. He never went beyond what would be, what we could all assume was his comfort zone. I mean, there's definitely times when, especially on and Sabotage, which is a, an album that, you know, the, the back history was that they were struggling with lawsuits and management and bad business and things like that. And it was really frustrating and it got them to a point where they were very angry. So some of that material, you could hear Ozzy's voice straining, almost cracking at times, but it was more from an emotional standpoint. It wasn't like from a pretentious, I'm trying to do something that a better singer could do, but I can't. It was more of an emotional thing, which, again, comes back to what you said about his vulnerability. Um, you know, he kind of put his ability aside in order to convey the emotional content of what was in the lyrics. I think that's really important. And that's one of the things that makes that album so outstanding. Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess at, at, at some point, you know, when when you're talking about Black Sabbath and any other band, whether you know the ba bands we've mentioned so far, Led Zeppelin, Deep Purple, um, keep coming back to the fact that if Black Sabbath was there's like basically two distinct eras, and as John said, when when the Dio era took off, then it became a different animal, and some of that, all these these great qualities and, and these unique things that we've been talking about with the Aussie area era completely diminished and it turned into something that was like John described when Dio came in with the fantasy lyrics and more of the, uh, I guess you could say a little bit more pretense. Um, 
And it, it definitely it turned a corner. And I, I love it. I love the Dio era. I, I think for what it is, it, it, it was great. There was nothing else really. I mean, you could, I guess you could say Rainbow because Dio sang in Rainbow. But when you combine Dio's voice and Dio adapted his voice to Tony's guitar playing, Tony was a heavier sounding guitar player than Richie Blackmore. And so Dio modified his voice to couple that. And the end result was this new era, this new sound of Black Sabbath. So, I mean, there again, they went from a band that was sort of in a class by themselves for the reasons that we talked about, you know, vulnerability, the, the easiness to connect, the working man aspect. They changed gear and also became a unique band because they were probably like the darkest band, the heaviest band of the 80s at that particular point in time. Judas Priest was heavy. There was up and coming bands from the new wave of British heavy metal movement. You know, in England, we had Iron Maiden, we had Angel Witch, um, Raven, Venom, things like that. But Black Sabbath was, they were the quintessential heavy, heavy metal band. And um, they were unparalleled. I mean, I guess you could say that in a way, it's almost as though Tony Iommi never really had a focus as far as concept of the band. But his one focus seemed to be constantly getting that guitar tone heavier. <laughs> I mean, because from album to album, it just it just seemed like he just kept climbing the ladder. Like, okay, that was pretty heavy, but let me see what I can do on this next album. Right. And, you know, it was always it was always amazing. You know, the, the tones that would come out of out of that guitar. Um, again, just set them apart from everyone else. I think. I also think, too, you know, when you mention the new wave of British heavy metal and you talk about Sabbath, you look at all those bands that, that came out, Sabbath was the direct influence of those bands. Like, that was the first line of musicians that really connected with Zeppelin. I mean, you talk about Holocaust, you mentioned Angel Witch, you know, there's Witch Find, and you said Raven was a great band, and even bands like Diamond Head, you know, Tank was probably a little bit more punkish, a little bit more motorheadish, you know, but you just had, you know, these bands that came out that were very primitive and very raw. The production on those albums were were very poor when you look at them now. I have a bunch of them. I've spent nearly a fortune on collecting all that kind of stuff. And, <laughs> and um, you know, but but what I appreciate about those bands, and it goes back to to Black Sabbath, is, you know, when you look at the, the, the timeline of influence, Sabbath was what they were playing from, what they were feeding off of. And it just grew from there. Then it grew into the thrash movement that you know all those bands inspired and you talk to metallica they say they talk about the influence of sabbath of course slayer and anthrax like we've mentioned already but it just really began with that and those bands were not far off from when sabbath started but they were all you know english bands and Mm -hmm. sabbath had that impact and i think you know i wasn't there i wasn't present but zeppelin seemed to be more of the the popular band, the band that all the girls went to and Sabbath was the band that everybody wanted to headbang to, you know, and just let out all that 
or, you know, that aggressive emotion. It's amazing when you think about the influence of Black Sabbath. You mentioned the new wave of British heavy metal, of course, the, the, the metal scene in general in the 80s. I mean, the whole stoner rock movement can be traced directly to, you know, master of reality. Doom metal, the subgenre doom metal is, is, is directly linked uh, to Black Sabbath. I mean, their, their influence is, is huge. And when you think about bands that had that much of an influence, I mean, I, maybe I'd put Led Zeppelin in there. Uh, I mean, if you go before Zeppelin and Sabbath, the Beatles, I mean, really like Black Sabbath for me is the Beatles of heavy metal where you talk to anybody. I mean, even the guys in Black Sabbath will say that they were influenced by the Beatles. Anybody of that age that started playing in the late 60s was influenced by the Beatles. You know, they saw the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, if you're, you know, here. Uh, but Black Sabbath is is the same way. It's like you, sometimes you hear people say, you know, every riff can be traced back to Tony Iommi, and there's some truth to that, you know, in a way. And 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 they've, you know, there's other bands that are very popular. Kiss is a very popular band, and Ace Frehley inspired a lot of guys to play guitar. But there aren't as many bands that say, yeah, musically we're kiss we're trying to sound musically like kiss but there are just tons of bands that are out there buying orange amplifiers to sound like iomi that are you know there's bands that have crafted their whole careers around black sabbath sleep for instance i mean you know sleep or electric wizard you know there's these bands that have just basically said all right we're taking the (laughs) <laughs> this aspect of Black Sabbath, yeah. and we're making a career out of it. And and, and Sabbath has become, I, I was just listening to the latest Sleep album today, and they have a song on there called Giza Butler. Yeah. You know? I mean, it's like <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sabbath has become this thing. And, and and we were mentioning earlier about, you know, drifting away from metal and, and everything and drifting away from Sabbath. But if you remember, like, right around, I don't know, I guess it was like 94, when that Nativity in Black tribute album came out, tribute albums were sort of a new-ish thing around that time and it became this thing where all of a sudden you know all these bands you really started to see the influence of of black sabbath all the modern bands like typo negative down to you know rob halford sang a song on that nativity in black i mean their their influence is just it's absolutely it's huge. And I, I can't think of many other metal bands, maybe besides Led Zeppelin, uh, that had as much of a influence as Black Sabbath has, especially on heavy metal. I mean, to me, they're, they're ground zero. You can five degrees of separation. Every riff can get traced back yeah. to, to Black Sabbath in some way. It's, it's, their influence is just it's huge. It is a bit of a phenomenon when you consider that when you mentioned sleep and and they had a song on their new album Giza Giza like the temple or the temples of Giza Butler I mean it, it's like it's unapologetic it's almost like it's a standard and we can we can take from this because it's it's such a enormous thing that of course. Why, why wouldn't we be able to? Black Sabbath is just, it's the all-encompassing element of everything that's around us when we play heavy metal. I mean, how could we not address it? But the thing that, when I, I said phenomenon, is that 
there's so many bands that, especially in the stoner doom genre, that purposely emulate, try to sound like Black Sabbath. I mean, you could even go back even further than that and say that Witchfinder General uh, sounded like Black Sabbath, yeah. unapologetically. You know, they just did it. And then it, you know, stopped for a little while. And then with the advent of, of stoner rock, doom metal, it came back full force. I mean, you have bands like Orchid who, <laughs> I mean, they, it was like a costume party and it was a, you know, a tribute band. They dressed up like them. It was like, you know, you looked at them on stage and it's like, wow, man, it looks like, it looks like it's 1972. And the singer sounded like them. Uh, they had almost everything down to maybe where, exactly where the tattoos were placed. Um, but it's a, what was it about Black Sabbath? This is a rhetorical question. What was it about Black Sabbath that makes bands think they can do that or want to do that? I mean, ACDC was another band. You know, John mentioned ACDC early on when we started talking. Um, they've got across the board have influenced a lot of different bands. You know, the, the simplicity of the of the riffs and it's nothing really. You don't have to be a virtuoso to, to play the songs. Um, but just really, really catchy. But there, there's something about Black Sabbath, I think, that that kind of just penetrated even deeper than that. Uh, it was just, it was beyond the, the workmanlike aspect of it. It was something that people just internalized and I think took uh, possession of, you know, because we invested so much into this music that it was like, it's okay to sound exactly like Ozzy. It's okay to, to rip off Bill Ward's drum fills. It's okay to take Black Sabbath riffs and make a song out of them like Orchid did. I don't know why, but we felt, you know, these bands obviously feel no, no compunction of guilt. I mean, it's just like, yeah, we can do this because we've invested so much of our time. We've invested so much emotion and ownership over these songs and over this band it, it's it's a part of us, I, I guess. You know, I, I can't think of any other reason anybody would have the audacity to to rip off band any band the way that, that other bands have ripped off Black Sabbath. You know, just well, their personality is so strong, they're so unique. They're like Jimi Hendrix or Eddie Van Halen. Nobody thinks now about if some guy's playing a whammy bar thing on his guitar, it's just become part of the vocabulary, if you will. And that's like Black Sabbath are like the building blocks. They are the vocabulary of heavy metal. So, of course, you almost have to draw from it. It's like Eddie Van Halen. I mean, you, you, his sound, the tapping, the technique, the whammy bar stuff, everybody does that now. That is just accepted as like, okay, this is if you're going to be a rock guitar player, you have to have these tools in your vocabulary. And it's like with Black Sabbath, if you're going to be a heavy metal band, you've got to have these certain tools that were created, uh, forged by Black Sabbath. They've got to be in your tool chest there somewhere. How you use them, that's up to you. But you know, it, it comes to the same thing with Hendrix. Hendrix came out and everybody after that owes a debt to Jimi Hendrix in, in one way or another. And it's, just, it's the same thing with Black Sabbath. They're so unique. They created this, this vocabulary that now everybody uses to some bands, you know, very much so, like we just mentioned. And then other bands just take little, little bits and pieces 
here and there from them. But and they're a band that's respected across, you know, like I think of when Guns N' Roses hit the scene and they were very against a lot of the more glammy bands, but but they were still. I would hear Axl Rose talk about Black Sabbath. Guns N' Roses used to do a cover of It's All Right live. Axl sat down at the piano on the Use Your Illusion tour and they did a cover of It's All Right. But because Black, because it's Black Sabbath, it's, 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 it's cool. You know, they transcended sort of time or genres or generations. They're timeless. Yeah. And you know what else is pretty cool? Um, you're talking about Guns N' Roses and a lot of mainstream hard rock bands in the 80s and even into the 90s that have taken Black Sabbath and made it such a prominent part of their, you know, forte, or their whole basic musical message. Punk and hardcore was doing the same thing, which was initially punk started out as a reaction to like 70s rock um you know stuff like progressive rock you know punk rock was like the antidote it was the antithesis of that 70s era bloated concept rock and all the dinosaurs that were associated with the 70s punk rock was like this new thing that was supposed to be less restrictive and more uh emotional more uh reactionary and yet here they are, Black Flag, Henry Rollins, um, later on, a little later on, mid-80s, Corrosion of Conformity, uh, hardcore punk bands with slow, slower riffs, down-tuned, Iomi-ish tones. Um, where did this come from? You know, so it's amazing that, you know, you have bands like, even though Axel was sort of, you know, didn't really want to be a part of the glam scene. He was definitely a rock star, you know. Henry Rollins was not, uh, you know, guys in Black, the other guys in Black Flag were not. People in Corrosion and Conformity were not. So it wasn't that they could connect with the whole rock vibe of Black Sabbath music. They dug a little deeper, to, I think, into that emotional aspect pull that out made that a part of what they were doing so i think that's pretty cool i mean you don't hear too many punk guys incorporating uh your eye heat the led zeppelin <laughs> deep purple at least not intentionally maybe accidentally but uh, the black sabbath influence the black sabbath uh nod was definitely an intentional thing and something you know that they thought was cool you know and the kids thought it was cool too and that i think for the next generation I mean, there was the, obviously the Black Sabbath had a lot of fans in the 70s going into the 80s. But uh, the kids that grew up where punk was their, their aggressive outlet, I think that punk, some punk bands turned them on to Black Sabbath. I mean, Black Flag turned, turned kids, teenagers on to Black Sabbath. You know, they probably thought of Black Sabbath as heaven and hell or mob rules. They, they, you know, growing up in the 80s, being exposed to, to that hardcore punk music thought black sabbath probably wasn't cool but then here's you know black flag playing recycled black sabbath riffs and the kids being like oh wow what, what was the influence of that or reading an interview where they're they're paying homage and say yeah you know henry rollins like unapologetically saying well, i just love black sabbath tony iomi you know and the kids reading that being like really black Sa you mean black sabbath is cool i thought they were a metal band i thought metal was bad wait a minute <laughs> 
I have to rethink this. I have to rewire my brain and, <laughs> and go back into this again. And, you know, I mean, it's pretty cool. You know, it's like it, Black Sabbath wasn't just a heavy metal band. They were just heavy music that, you know, that translated to rock, hard rock, heavy metal, and also punk and hardcore. You, 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 we talk about that vocabulary. We talk about the influence. And, you know, of course, it started with the new wave of British heavy metal and into thrash. And then you mentioned today, you know, modern rock music, doom and stoner rock. I mean, I just had Lucifer on last week, you know, a band from Sweden that has all the elements of Sabbath in there. And, you know, it's, it's a little more modern and everything, but man, right to the core, you hear it. You hear 1000 mods from Greece, you know, who's this great stoner rock band that just has this electric sound, um, and, and what they do. And I remember hearing them for the first time, like four years ago, I'm like, man, that is so Sabbathy. Like, like, wow. Like, like young kids playing this music. And that really is, I think the definition of their legacy. I mean, we could talk about the era after Ronnie James deal where, you know, it was the, you know, the lead singer position was kind of a revolving door and constantly changing. But really when you now take a step back and, you know, we're in that reflective period of, of Black Sabbath where we're reflecting on their influence. That really is, I think, the definition of their legacy, which is all these genres of music that they touch, that they basically started. They're the seed of growth in all those genres. Even grunge, uh, the first wave of grunge. I remember yeah. when I heard the first wave of grunge, my first reaction was like, this is awesome. This is 70s Sabbath. When I heard Soundgarden, I thought Black Sabbath, uh, you know, same thing with Allison Chains and the Melvins. And, you know, you're right. It's incredible how Black Sabbath and even at that time, you know, 90 Black Sabbath is, you know, down and out a little bit in the early 90s, their late 80s, early 90s. I still love those albums, but, you know, they weren't in the public eye anymore like they they used to be but yet their influence was was still there and i think that that does speak to their legacy the way that their influence has has been able to stay alive and be handed down through so many different you know if you got your heavy metal tree here and black sabbath is the base of the tree and you see all these branches shooting off from it it's it's funny because in in the early 90s uh right around the grunge time Heavy metal was like, it was just so not cool, you know, and uh, not to me, but um, in the mainstream, if you read Spin Magazine, I mean, if you were like musically, if you tried to stay musically on top of what was going on in the early 90s, early to mid 90s, and you read magazines like Spin or whatever, um, you know, there was definitely a backlash of against heavy metal. Heavy metal just wasn't cool. It, it was just like the, grunge was, was trotted out and it was basically heavy metals replacement um and a lot of the bands were talking about making fun of bands you know nirvana was making fun of guns and roses and things like that so the basic uh, sentiment was that heavy metals just not cool except for black sabbath if it black sabbath is cool. <laughs> but all other heavy metal is not but black sabbath is well what about aerosmith <laughs> what about led zeppelin what about no ah uh, no Okay, but I don't understand. Black Sabbath was from that era. They're, I, I can't explain it. They're just cool. <laughs> you know, Black Sabbath gets a pass. All heavy metal is bad. It's you know, let's ridicule it. Let's let's make fun of it. You know, let's just tear it up in the press. But we we can't touch Black Sabbath for 
whatever reason, it just had that and just had that effect or just couldn't be diminished, I guess. You, you know, when you, you think of Ozzy's solo career and you think of Jakey e. Lee and you think of his band Badlands, you know, with a very heavy Black Sabbath influence. You know, when you think of that atmospheric style of guitar that he really played, that was a lot different than what he did with Ozzy, you know, on Bark at the Moon and Ultimate Sin, where he really kind of went more towards a darker tone on that record. And of course, Ray Gellin, you know, Ray uh, sang on a Black Sabbath album, you know, so there was that connection there, even though Ozzy wasn't a part of that band. But when you think of that era in the late 80s and 90s, do you think because of the ins and outs of singers and all the issues they were having. Do you think that may have hurt their legacy during that time? Whereas, you know, other movements of rock were happening and Zeppelin was becoming more popular and during the time, because if you look at really, I mean, Zeppelin, of course, in the seventies were extremely popular, but you know, they, they kept growing their popularity even after they weren't even making any new music. Whereas, Sabbath, even though they were making music, they they had that challenge of remaining relevant. And in many ways during that period, they kind of failed at that. You know, of course, the hardcore Sabbath fans will, you know, were were listening to it. But, you know, as, as I mentioned, we're in that reflective period. If you look back on their career, do you think that created a challenge of, you know, defining their legacy as we look at them now? I think they were they they got back together with Ozzy enough times. Like when did Live Aid happen? What was that? Eighty five. Okay. okay, so remember they played it Live Aid with Ozzy. That sort of you know brought back that. You were talking about Led Zeppelin. I agree with you. Like the Led Zeppelin, they became like this classic rock, legendary band that still seemed to never really go away they in some ways they they grew in stature it seemed like like through the 80s and then and to a certain degree the 90s and i think sabbath i agree that those i think a lot of people who are just casual rock fans aren't even aware of some of those martin era albums i mean fans like us we were buying them we were aware of them but i think what did keep their legacy around was Dio came back for, for a brief spell. Ozzy, they did a one-off thing at Live Aid. They did the thing with uh, Ozzy's No More Tours, where they were playing a, a set with, with Ozzy there. And then by the time the late 90s rolls around, Ozzy does eventually come back into the band. And they did do, do the reunion thing. Uh, but I know what you mean by the constant revolving door of singers. It did not help in some ways if the band had stopped right after Dio, they may have had a trajectory a little bit more like Led Zeppelin, like you described, but that constant revolving door of singers and musicians and everything, it really, uh, you know, it, it, it took them off the, uh, the mainstream radar, but I think it was those getting back together with, Ozzy on a somewhat, uh, you know, regular basis, even if it was just here and there, even if it was just rumors. And the other thing is that Ozzy 
was massively successful. This is another point when, you know, the mid eighties and on Ozzy was, Ozzy was huge until, you know, let's say no more tears. Osmosis was a huge record too. You know, Ozzy was very mainstream, the Osbournes, the Ozfest and all that time, Ozzy's name gets black Sabbath gets tied in with with the Ozzy name so in some ways maybe Ozzy solo helped keep Black Sabbath alive the name alive during some of those more down uh, years for the band I I think for me uh, and I like the album uh, Seven Star but I think that's when people started to become a bit disenfranchised with what Black Sabbath was it was really hard to figure out exactly what was going on there. The music just took a different turn. Um, there was the singer, you know, Glenn Hughes. And I mean, Glenn Hughes was, he was, of course, you know, he was in Trapeze, but tra- Trapeze is obscure by and large. Um, he was in Deep Purple for a couple albums, three albums. Um, so, I mean, he had that 70s heavy rock credibility but still relatively relatively speaking he was kind of obscure so when his voice came into black sabbath or the tony iomi solo album which was called black sabbath um i think it just sounded so different from anything else it was really hard for i think a lot of people just jumped off they're just like yep i'm out that's it for me i i don't know what i don't know what's going on here (laughs) i can't figure it out it's not bad it's not bad but it's not it doesn't sound like Look, I, I hung with him through Dio. You know, I, I, I could get into that. It was cool. You know, I loved him in Ozzy and, and I loved him in Dio. But yeah, this is this is just too, I, I can't wrap my head around it. And I think people did kind of jump off. And then from from that, when we had, you know, Ray Gillen was in for, for a period of time. He did some shows. Uh, I guess he recorded basic tracks for Eternal Idol. But then Tony Martin came in okay. and recorded. Tony Martin is like, he's a great singer and I think he really did the band a service in so far as being able to do every era he could do. He could sing the Ozzy material in a way that did it justice. Dio couldn't not for him not being a good enough singer, but his voice was just different. And I don't think Dio wanted to do that. I don't think he wanted to sing like Ozzy. I don't think he wanted to sound I don't think he wanted to sing that material. Um, he could do the Dio, Dio, the Dio era material really well. And of course, his own material that he was a part of within Black Sabbath was kind of a combination of the Dio and Ozzy era. You know, we, we kind of go back and forth with different moods and different vibe of some of the songs in the Tony Martin era. So I think in a lot of ways, the thing that really broke Sabbath down and was a fatal misstep was seven star. And and I do like the album for what it is, but I think if I'm looking at it in retrospect and I'm thinking, where did things go too far off track? I think that was it. I think if they'd have gone from Dio and went right into headless cross, maybe uh, it might not have been such a difficult transition for people to make, but I think the seven star just kind of tripped people up. Another observation and I, we were talking about Live Aid, and the thing about I was watching the, the movie. You guys have probably seen it too, the Bohemian Rhapsody, where they're talking yeah. about that Queen has the opportunity towards the end of the movie, and uh, Brian May is convincing Freddie Mercury or vice versa. They're talking about 
oh, every band is getting together. And they list off every single band except for Black Sabbath. And that, <laughs> reunion, and that reunion was so significant because it was the first time that yeah, lineup had been on stage since 1978. And it was like, wait a minute, what, what just happened here? Did, did Black Sabbath just get snubbed? Yes. Why? Why did they get snubbed? And they've always been, they just, they, they never, for as much as we mentioned earlier, that they're the working man's band, they, they, they never won over the musical elites, the critics, the, the, the people who hand out statues at awards ceremonies, yeah. you know, Sabbath, like they were never that band, but for, and I think that that's what endears them to the fans. They're the fans band, you know, to, if you're a black Sabbath fan, you know, you're a black Sabbath fan and it means something really special to you. They've, they've never had any, you know, a, a big, huge sellout, moments they never became some thing where there were i don't know you know variety cartoon tv shows on tv about them or i mean you can maybe say ozzy with his solo career with the osbournes he he became very commercial and mainstream but but black sabbath you know they never did they never won awards they're never a red carpet uh, you know, they're never a red carpet band, but what did do them a disservice to, 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 to what we were saying here earlier is they never had the same lineup after never say die every black Sabbath album would have at least one different uh, member in it. And on top of that, between every record, once you get around the seven star era, you know, you would open up Hit Parade or Magazine and and that issue, Ron Keel was the vocalist. Some other guy was playing bass. Some other guy was playing. By the next issue of Hit Parader, it was somebody else. It was somebody, you know, and it was always the same thing. There'd be a band picture of them and the new lineup of Black Sabbath. And just when you were like, oh, cool, you know, you get excited about it. It changed a month yeah. later and it was really hard to get invested i mean I, I loved it but it what it did lose was that you know through that whole era it was so confusing and and it, it almost got to a point where you're like yeah right new yeah new bass play i'm a i'm a bass player so this would always interest me like okay they've got a new bass player let's see if this guy can last till the next issue of hit parader you know it was hard to hang to to get invested in it sometimes because it changed so often and i think that that really you know, that really hurt them. This just constant revolving door of, of musicians. I, I think that uh, in spite of the fact that they were having a difficult time staying relevant, I think that their legacy was so huge, was so important that it saved them. It was the one thing that kept that ship sailing all the way through. Um, I guess you could say until when was it? Nineteen. 98 96 when they got back together with the original lineup for the reunion live album um although bill ward didn't participate in the tour that followed but there was a lot of excitement about that people really were like yeah black sabbath cool and any of those albums that didn't really chart or weren't really a, a blip on the radar were pretty much forgotten about and people were basically i remember i I was excited. John, you you probably saw the shows too in 96. Did you go to OzFest and see that? Yeah. yeah I mean, oh, yeah. walking around, I mean, I, I had like money burning a hole in my pocket. I just went right to the merch. I bought every single t-shirt. <laughs> and the funny thing about it was 
the main artwork was some of it from you know the the design from the reunion album but a lot of it had the uh the the pilots from never say mm-hmm. die so it was almost subconsciously the narrative was we're picking up where we left off and nothing that happened after that <laughs> before this is even relevant it doesn't exist we're going back to never say die to right here in the present tense and yeah i mean that made sense you get the same lineup you know and uh it worked because i mean <laughs> i mean people already sort of either didn't know about headless cross eternal idol uh tear uh cross purposes and i i really love those albums um I've grown more fond of them over time. Uh, but you know, I, I had a I had some problems, some issues connecting with some of those those songs. Some of the some of the, I mean, I, I could take a song here and there and be like, yeah, that's pretty cool. But overall, the album did I internalize it as much as I did anything from the Ozzy, the Dio era? No way. Um, and I think a lot of people probably felt the same way. So maybe they didn't hang with Black Sabbath the way that I tried to, you know, like just held on for dear life. Like, come on, <laughs> I have faith in you. You're not going to let me down again. Are you? Oh, I'm still, and then I, they, you know, they, they, I got a treat. I got, I got dehumanized. And I was like, yes, finally, I knew if I hung in there long enough, <laughs> that my prayers would be answered. And it'd be a great Black Sabbath album. And then well, that lasts about a year and then boom. And then, and then forbidden shows up. Yeah. <laughs> with that because i mean i'm like i don't care i'm at least that kind of rejuvenated my you know my my interest again it's like okay i revitalized i've had i've had some dehumanizer now i can now i can take on cross purposes and i think i can like it cross purpose had come after uh tear instead of dehumanizer i i probably wouldn't have had much time for that but anyway you know. Michael Bolton auditioned for them before Dio. Is that true? I've heard that. I heard it was after Dio. Yeah. After uh, Dio? Yeah. Uh, Tony's yeah, I've heard that. Yeah. Tony's talked about it. And Michael Bolton's talked about it. It seems like it's incredible the number of people that, that say that they had a cup of coffee with Black Sabbath, you know, that they had an audition or that lasted for one one photo session. And we're gone b- b- before the uh, before the film was even developed. Yeah. <laughs> Dave Donato. The, the yeah, I mean, there's I Donato. remember that. Yeah, yeah. It's that incredible how many you. people walked through that band. And when you get into bass players and keyboard players and different guys that just you know had some sort of passing association with the band, it was it was really uh, you know just a real revolving yeah. door. We had uh, Terry thing. Chimes on drums from the Clash. I mean, good. I, I never saw Bev, that. Bevan from UFO toured with them. Or, not from UFO, from ELO. ELO toured that with wasn't them, quite yeah. strange at the time. It was like it was like apples and oranges. But when you think about it, Jet Records, Don Arden uh bev bevan grew up in the same er- er- uh, area of birmingham they knew each other it, it started to make sense but terry chimes <laughs> wow how did that happen and i still don't know how that happened and he he sounded good with him he was on the uh, eternal idol tour i think he was actually on part of the seven star he was only with him for about a year or so but some of the some of the live shows and i have a ton of bootlegs and some of the live shows from the eternal idol tour or 
fantastic. And, and Terry Chimes, I mean, well, you know, he sounds a, a lot better than Bev Bevan, that's for sure. I mean, he at least tried <laughs> to to do Bill Ward's fills. And for the most part, he was pretty successful, if not even incorporating his own. You know, he was a good drummer. Bev Bevan, I don't know, maybe was. He's never really impressed me. But, uh, you know, that, the, yeah, the Bev Bevan thing was kind of strange in a way. As we close, what do you feel their definitive song and definitive album is, you know, that defines their legacy, that defines who Black Sabbath is? Diver Down. (laughs) (laughs) It has to be Paranoid. I mean, you know, there's that's that's their biggest selling album. That's that has all their iconic songs on it. Iron Man, if if you can. You could be watching a college football game and Iron Man comes blasting out over the PA system. Uh, you can, you know, I, I can hum the riff to Iron Man to my parents and they won't know what the name of the song is, but they'll recognize it, you know, and they don't know what album it's from. But, you know, everybody, whether you realize it or not, you've heard Iron Man or you've heard Paranoid. I mean, those songs have sort of... Uh, you know, transcended time at this point, you hear them in car, you hear them in TV commercials and stuff like that. And uh, so I think it has to be for me, at least, you know, paranoid is the album that, that defined black Sabbath. Yeah. I'm going to go with paranoid too. When John and I did our uh, ranking our black Sabbath album ranking all 19 albums, um, you know, we started at the bottom, worked our way up to the top and I, I, I put paranoid at the top. I said, you, you really can't talk about black Sabbath and not mention war pigs, iron man, uh, paranoid, uh, fairies wear boots. I mean, every song is it's iconic. It, it's probably the most important black Sabbath albums. Is it my favorite? No, not necessarily, but I think it's the most important album. I think it's the album. If I, if I ran into somebody who'd never heard of Black Sabbath and wanted to know what they sounded like, I would give them a copy of Paranoid and say, hey, take this home, listen to it, come back tomorrow and I'll give you another one. But this is where you start. I think it's the most important album. And I think back to that 10-year-old me borrowing that record. I remember my, my first thought borrowing that record was, this is awesome. Now I can listen to Iron Man as many times as I want to. I don't have to wait for it to come on the radio. Yeah. You know, whereas now, you know, many years later, I'm kind of like, uh, you know what? I'm a little bit tired of Iron Man and Paranoid. But man, the 10 year old me just when I had that record in my hand, that's all I kept thinking was, man, I can't wait to listen to Iron Man over and over again. <laughs> Are you guys like me where if you walk into a bar or club or tune in on the radio and you miss part of the intro of Iron Man where he goes, ah, you know, Ozzy does the thing. You're like, ah, damn, I missed it. You know, it's like, (laughs) you know, I still feel that way. Even, even now that, you know, I'm in my forties, you know, I still get upset whenever I miss that part of the song. Oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah, it's it's fantastic. (laughs) I just noticed, you know, and here's the great thing about Black Sabbath. How many times have I heard the song Iron Man? Thousands, yeah. tens of thousands of times. I was listening to it when we were getting ready for our, our podcast episode on the album. And I noticed it just for the first time. I noticed this, that that bass drum in the beginning, the boom, boom, it moves from one speaker to another, like somebody walking, like an eye, boom, boom, 
boom, you know, moving across your thing. And I mean, of course, I had heard that bass drum, but I had never noticed really that it moves from one speaker to the other. And it gives you this illusion of an Iron Man, an Iron Bloke, as Geezer likes to say, you know, kind of walking around. And here it is like 10,000 listens later. I just noticed that. (laughs) You know, that's one of the things that's so cool about uh, for people like us who've heard these albums so many times, thousands upon thousands of times, when we get these super deluxe box set editions and, you know, they've been remastered or in some cases remixed. And it's so cool to listen to, well, especially with the Paranoid box, because that has a quadraphonic uh, mix and you can hear some of the instruments are more obscured in favor of other things that are going on. It's really cool. It's like, it's almost like a reward for having, listen to these albums for so many years for so long for so many times that it's like they've decided that the sabbath gods have smiled upon us and said okay (laughs) you're in for a treat you're going to be hearing volume four paranoid sabotage technical ecstasy in a completely new and unique way ah great you know and it's exactly what they did i mean it's like we love those albums but yeah we've heard them a lot these super deluxe box sets uh have really opened them up in a way that that's made them like discovering them all over again. Still the songs that we know and love, but just like giving it a little bit of an extra dash of something, you know, just making it a little bit more interesting after all these years, something, something different. Here's, here's that tambourine a little bit louder in war picks. Yeah, <laughs> well, that's what I was just going to say, you know, I mean, I agree with paranoid on the album, but for me, the song, that defines them as war pigs because I believe it really does show a diverse side of the band that I don't think that the casual Sabbath fan or casual metal fan really gives them that due that how diverse they really were. And that I think that song really does encapsulate like the, the, you know, what they were, what they were socially conscious, you know, atmospheric and heavy music. I mean, it really does, you know, uh, define them, in my opinion. Absolutely. Well, Darren, John, thanks for doing this, man. This was a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. A lot of fun. Yeah, yeah absolutely. We'll do it again. Thank okay. you. Cool. Absolutely. All right, everybody. That's Darren and John from Into the Void, the Black Sabbath podcast. I'm Jay Scott, listening to another edition of The Rocks. Take care. Take care of each other. We'll talk soon. Thanks.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 